Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Jean de la Bruyere once said, Next to sound judgment, diamonds and pearls are the rarest thing in the world. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email or messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, or our website chat board. Jonathan, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back, Rick. We are sorry for your loss, but... Uh, well, thank you. The, the Lord was uh, very merciful um, throughout the experience of the loss of my father. And uh, you came back with the same smile you always have, <laughs> uh, resting in God's grace. And that's always a great example. I appreciate Amen. that. So what's our topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, do I have a sound Christian mind? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Okay, so the question, do I have a sound Christian mind? Have you ever thought about what it means to be given the spirit of power and love and and sound judgment? With this spirit of power, should not all enemies of God cower before us as we call them out for what they are? With this spirit of love, should we not be able to bridge any gap and overcome any difference among us? And with this spirit of a sound mind, which means sound judgment or discipline, should we not be able to see right through the traps of the adversary in the cunning selfishness of our own minds and always think, speak, and act in exact accordance with God's will? Jonathan, if only it were that easy. (laughs) Folks, coming up in today's podcast, let's be truthful, okay? Do we think clearly and logically all the time, or are we more often than not all tied up in our emotions, our circumstances, and what we really want? What we need to do is figure out how a sound Christian mind actually works. As we talk today about what it looks like, we're going to take segments two and three to understand what powers our Christian mind and this is really is a really kind of a startling point, and also how love drives that Christian mind. Let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed when you're helping someone else deal with important matters that you're far more clear-minded than when you have to deal with your own challenges? In segments four and five, we look at what stands in the way of clear thinking and actually take apart how a sound Christian mind works. We also look at an example of how Jesus expected such a mind from the Apostle Peter. So that's what's coming up today. Well, Rick, when it comes to the Scripture, the fact is we need to develop these things and engage them as tools in our everyday against all things godless. So, Instead of imagining ourselves as superhero Avengers who have the power to call out evil, let us instead see ourselves as blessed to be learning how to use what God has given. 
it is kind of cool to imagine yourself as a superhero Avenger, but <laughs> really not profitable. Okay, <laughs> that's that's really what this is about. Let's let's get down to what's profitable and what's not. So we're going to put the Avengers aside for now, and let's get back to the scripture. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. So, Jonathan, let's get started right at the beginning of that scripture. What is this spirit of fear? What does the word for fear mean in this scripture? Well, Rick, it means timidity, fearfulness, and cowardice. That doesn't sound very good. No, that's that's a, a helpless fear. Yes, cowardice. I mean, folks, I'm sure you've had experiences where you felt cowardly. What? Remember that feeling, okay? You know, now, the word fear is translated from several different words in the New Testament. It's interesting, this is the only time this particular word appears for fear. And it means timidity, fearfulness, and cowardice. There is an appropriate kind of fear that we should have. That's an entirely different word, Jonathan. What does that one mean? That's right, Rick. It means properly caution, reverence, and dread. Okay. Caution, reverence, piety, that kind of thing. So it says when it says fear the Lord, and, and you do this all the time. Whenever we have scriptures that talk about fear God, you always drop in the word reverence. That's right. I do, because we have to take it right. Right. And reverence can make you shake with fear, because if you are reverencing God and you have been in the wrong, you know, you're like, oh, my goodness, what do I do now? This isn't good. And that's my appropriate. father's going to discipline me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's a good fear. So that's the good kind. Cowardice. No, not so good. So, um, and, and just let's give a scripture that shows us an example of this good fear. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Okay, and that could be, and godly caution or godly dread, because you don't, you know, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a mighty God. You know, we have to look at him with that awe. And that that I am small, he's big, that's just the way it is. And so that's important to have. Cowardice, though, is not. So we need to maintain appropriate fear, but seek to replace fear and cowardice with, as Second Timothy 1.7 reads, that you read at the beginning, with the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So how do we do that? First, let's illustrate what cowardice looks like. And, and Jonathan, I think we want, might want to put a couple of disclosures in place because we're going to talk about Peter's denial of Jesus as a practical, <laughs> practical example of what cowardice uh, is and, and, and the, the cowardice that actually lives inside of all of us and what it can do. And, and Rick, we're going to take combined scriptures of Matthew 26, 67 through 75, and Luke 22, 56 to 62, so we see the full picture. Right, but, you know, we're talking about Peter, and he doesn't come out looking too bright and shiny in this example, does he? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. But it shows the humanness of us all when we make mistakes, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and remember, this is not the end of the story of Peter. This is actually the beginning of the story of Peter. So here he is denying Jesus the night before he is crucified. These are hard scriptures to read. So let's get started with them. We'll break them into pieces and, and take a look at these scriptures in light of our theme scripture of the spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind. Go ahead. Let's get started. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, 
prophesy to us, you Christ, who was the one who hit you? So, you know, Jesus is being beaten and mercilessly mocked. It is a horrific situation. Peter is watching. Here's what happens. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a certain maid, seeing him as he sat in the light of the fire and looking steadfastly upon him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. So he denies that he was with Jesus. In his spoken denial, Peter denied the power of Jesus in his life. He is because this is such an awkward, horrible, difficult, pressure-filled situation. He succumbed to that pressure, and he denies the power of Jesus in his life. Remember, we're talking about the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. In that first denial, he's denying the power of Jesus that he had been with and followed for three to three and a half years. Let's continue. In a little while, when he had gone out to the gateway, Another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So, Jonathan, what's the difference between this denial and the previous one? Oh, Rick, this hurts my heart because he did it with an oath. Yeah, Uh, It just breaks your heart that he would succumb to the flesh in such a way. You know, with an oath. The word for oath means that which has been pledged or promised. So he's saying, look, Mm. I promise you I was not with the man. So Peter here, because he puts this incredibly strong promise in place, denies the love of Jesus in his life because he's sort of trying to take take it away with this promise. And and you're right, Jonathan, this is heartbreaking to read. You know, and this is what cowardice does. This is an example of where we end up when cowardice overtakes us. And Peter was overtaken at this point. So he denied first, he denied the power of Jesus in his life. He now denied the love of Jesus in his life because he swore it with an oath. And it even gets worse. Let's continue. And after the space of about one hour, the bystanders came up and confidently affirmed, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. So now his denial escalates. Peter denies any soundness of mind here. He's cursing, he's swearing, he's lost control. There's no sound mind. And, and, and so he, any soundness that Jesus had given him in all of the miracles and all of the teachings was just chased away. So all of that soundness that Jesus presented to him, he couldn't, he couldn't hold on to it. He's yelling and cursing instead. R- Rick, fear just so overwhelmed him. Yes. He lost it. He did. He did. And, and you know, we look at that and we say, you can't recover from that. He's that far gone. Ha <laughs> Wait till the end. Wait. But before then, here's what happens. Let's just finish the, the story. And immediately a rooster crowed while he spake. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said unto him, Before the cock crew this day, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, the scripture also said in between that Jesus looked at him because he heard the words. He heard, That's right. He heard the denial. And so we see Peter realizing what he has just done, and he is a broken man. 
and Rick, this just shows us the humanness and the frailty that we truly are ourselves. And now we remember, uh, to clarify, this was before Pentecost. Yep. Peter did not have the Holy Spirit right. uh, that was upon him. He was following, he was close to Jesus, but he was still human. Right. And this shows us humanity. And I think this experience is there so we can relate to it and say it even happened to the Apostle Peter. So it, this is encouraging, even though it's heartbreaking. So we're looking at cowardice, Jonathan. What's our, our cowardice conclusion at this point? Cowardice paves the road for chaos to override our clear spiritual conscience. Cowardice makes chaos have a way in. And when we are thinking and acting in a chaotic manner, it's not a godly manner. This is what we need to get away from so we can move towards the spirit of a sound mind. And that's really what we're talking about. So, so think about this. We are all cowardly in some way. Now we can be afraid of the fact that we're afraid. Great! Is the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind three different things, or are they all part of one thing? We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. However we look at it, the key beginning point is to see this text as an action of replacement. We're all born of sinful stock and therefore have a great propensity toward cowardice when we are faced with the uphill battle of standing against the pressures that the worldly crowd faces us with. So I guess, Jonathan, what I'm saying is cowardice is natural to all of us. It is, and I've had that feeling, and I hate that feeling that I would succumb to it, but we all fall into that pit at times. And, and it's interesting that some, we would fall into that pit at different times than somebody else. True. You know, there's areas of life that I may be more cowardly that you are far more bold, and then vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand it's an individual thing, but it exists in all of us. So we're going to be looking at this this idea of a spirit of a sound mind. Let's go to a soundbite from Five Tips to Improve Your Critical Thinking from Samantha Agos. And uh, she just well, – she's not – she's the one who put it together. The, the, the narrator is just talking about the concept of critical thinking. And the spirit of a sound mind really has a lot to do with being able to put things in order. So let's get this to uh, help us get off on the right foot. We're bombarded with so many decisions that it's impossible to make a perfect choice every time. But there are many ways to improve our chances, and one particularly effective technique is critical thinking. This is a way of approaching a question that allows us to carefully deconstruct a situation, reveal its hidden issues, such as bias and manipulation, and make the best decision. If the critical part sounds negative, that's because, in a way, it is. Rather than choosing an answer because it feels right, a person who uses critical thinking subjects all available options to scrutiny and skepticism. Using the tools at their disposal, they'll eliminate everything but the most useful and reliable information. 
I think that's really cool to, to think about it that way, you know, to, 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 to be skeptical, to be clear, to use the sense of, 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 of clarity, of logic, of sequence to figure something out rather than, oh, but it doesn't feel right. And, you know, there, there are those that can look at you and say, well, you know, you can't take all the emotion out. No, you can't. But you have to put the emotion behind the critical thinking. And I think that's part of what we're going to get to with this whole thing. So now this segment, we're going to focus on the spirit of power. Uh, uh, you know, again, you know, Jonathan, reread the theme scripture the way we were talking about just before we got started with the podcast. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear but the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind. And adding the spirit of, the spirit of, the spirit of, it breaks it into three elements that, yes, I, that I think are all part of the same big thing. So the spirit of power is first. This is fascinating to me. What is it, this spirit of power, and why did the Apostle Paul write this to Timothy? Because this is in the, the second book of, uh, of Timothy, and Jonathan, that's the last thing that Paul wrote before he died. Wow. So, that's, so it's, it's got to be uh, forceful. It's yes. got to make an impact in Timothy's life to carry on the work of the gospel. And, and I think that's really a big part of it. So the, I, the word for power, what does it mean? Well, Rick, this means force, literally or figuratively, especially miraculous power. Okay, especially miraculous power. In, in the New Testament, that word is used, and it specially focuses on miraculous power. And that's really true. I looked up all of the uses of this word and, and the word that's really closely associated with it, and it's always about the power of God, the power of Jesus, or some miracle, the power of some miracle. So it's like, wow, this is telling us something very elevated in terms of power. So here's the thing. Timothy is in a hard, is living in a hard time of persecution, and he needed reminding to step out in God's power and not to fear. The apostle, think about this. The apostle Paul is going to die soon. Okay, that's going to leave this incredible void. Timothy is the apostle Paul's spiritual son. He's like saying to him, "Here, I want you to pick up and run with what I have begun." On top of that persecution was escalating. This is about A.D. 65. Remember A.D. 70 and the, and the desolation of Jerusalem? Mm. So yeah. this harsh, is... Harsh times in yes, Rome. Harsh times in that entire area. There's lots of persecution, and it's getting worse, and now the Apostle Paul is not going to be there anymore. And I think that's why we see the Apostle writing to Timothy in this way. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 5 through 8, because we want the context of what we're talking about. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. See, he's encouraging Timothy, kindle afresh the gift of God that's in you. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me. I mean, think about this. Here's a great invitation. Join me in suffering for the gospel. Oh, wow. <laughs> but see, that's the point. That's why he says, God has not given us the spirit of cowardice, 
because it takes a lot of strength to stand. But he's given us instead the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So we've got to get to the bottom of what he's encouraging Timothy to do at this really difficult time. So he's saying we must exercise this power by relying on our spiritual mind. Not on earthly thinking, not on earthly concern, but relying on our spiritual mind. Mind And this reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll do verses 14 and then verse 16. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the apostle in 1 Corinthians here is comparing the mind of a natural man and the mind of a spiritual man. And he's saying, the natural man doesn't get this stuff with the Spirit of God. It's foolishness. And, you know, if you were to talk about God's providence and God's overruling to somebody who doesn't believe in God, they'd just look at you and laugh like, boy, you really, you really got to, you know, get yourself grounded there, son. But Because it's not natural, Rick. And that's exactly right. God's power working through you, it, it's, it is miraculous, just like the definition. Yeah. It's not, the power is not coming from us. And that's the point. The point is, when it says the spirit of power, it's not the spirit of, I lifted weights today, so I have more power. That's not it. See, this power is miraculous. And folks, pay really close attention to this, because if you're a true follower of Christ and have been given God's spirit in you, this power is miraculous. Even in us who cannot perform miracles, because miracles are not for today. You know, that's, that's for another podcast. But they're not. We are living miracles. And we need to remember that. We need to accept that. Because if That's you, sobering. That is sobering. It's we a, are living miracles? Yes, we are. If we have God's power abiding in us, that doesn't happen naturally. There is no natural supplement that you can take that will give you God's power. This is power from on high. This is different So we are living miracles. Ephesians 3.16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. To be strengthened, that's the same word as power. To be strengthened with might, with power, with this miraculous power in the inner man, that new creature from 1 Corinthians 5.17. So how do we access this power that comes from God and dwells in our spiritual mind? How do we access that instead of our natural mind. Because remember, Jonathan, this is a, there's two of those things going on at the same time. That's right. <laughs> okay, so how do, we, how do we get from one and go to the other? So let's go to a little play on words. You know me, I love words. Okay, let's go to a PowerPoint. All right, and that is consciously change your source of strength. Consciously change your source of strength. Take it away from you, and it's God, reliance on him. And let's go over a scripture that shows us that very thing from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31. And these verses, a lot of folks know these verses. They're very inspirational verses. But there's a tweak in the understanding that a lot may not realize. And it really plays into what we're talking about here. So Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Okay, so the power that comes from God, his, it's unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens those who are powerless. It's saying this, it, that comes from God. Verse 30. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. Okay, so it's, it's now comparing. The youngest of us. Now, Jonathan, you and I are not quite the youngest of us anymore. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about those in vitality of youth. Yes. That have strength and stamina, you know, from the worldly standpoint. Right. Even they will fall exhausted. Verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So it's saying they will have more strength and power and vitality than the very young ones. Now, it's not talking physical, but it's talking this spiritual vitality. It says they shall renew their strength. And when you look at that word, it sounds like you're saying, okay, I'm just going to recharge my battery and then I'll be able to go again. But that's not what that word actually means. Just let's go through some of the definition. I know it's long, but it, it really helps us to understand. What does it mean they shall renew their strength? To hasten away, pass on, spring up, pierce or change, abolish, alter, change, cut off, go on forward, grow up, be over, pass away on through, renew, sprout, strike through so a lot of these definitions have to do with changing it's changing abolish alter change cut off so it's like wait wait you're not renewing something that was already there you're changing something the same word is used in genesis 41:14 then pharaoh sent and called joseph and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto pharaoh changed his clothes he took off the old and put on the new so doesn't that you remind you rick of christ in you the hope yes. of glory it's christ in you there's no hope of glory without christ in you change the source of your strength so those who wait upon the lord shall change the source of their strength then because they now rely upon the lord they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint change the source of your strength how do you do that well, there's an interesting New Testament equation for that. We find that through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Even considering the exceptional character of the revelations, therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So the Apostle Paul brings his, his malady before God, and, 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 and Jesus answers him and says, my grace is sufficient. My, you, power, same word, power is made perfect in weakness. And the apostle's reaction is, 
okay, so I don't need this thing taken away from me. I will therefore boast gladly of my weakness, so the power, same word, of Christ will dwell in me. So, Jonathan, it's not being, it's not being miraculously healed. It's, no, it's not. It's miraculously being guided and, and, and strengthened by the indwelling of the power of God through Christ in us. And Rick, that's a great point. Now, if the faith healing ministries would only understand this verse and believe it, they would not continue preaching against God's word about healing when that's not what is said here. That false power, that satanic power can harm and influence many people in the wrong way. It can, it can hurt them. And the point is that the spirit of power is the spirit of the miraculous indwelling of God's spirit within you that can give you the influence and the insight and the direction and, and, and the guidance to be able to move forward in accordance with the will of God in the footsteps of Jesus. That is how we have to do it. That's what the spirit of power is here. So cowardice versus the spirit of, of power. Power, again, this miraculous thing that we don't deserve, that we can't earn, that comes to us because God loved us and called us and Jesus gave us his example. What's power's point here? We are powerless against cowardice, but by God's spirit, we can overcome it. Okay. Cowardice happens. It just happens in life. With God's spirit, we can overcome it. The spirit of power, this miraculousness is the first step in us being able to see and understand that. See, so now that we can see that there is a power that can handle our fear, this is a relief, but it's still kind of scary. We literally have the miraculous power of God with us. Does the spirit of love work the same way? Learning about your hosts is always a good thing. Rick and Jonathan both love studying the Bible and sharing their thoughts with you every week. Did you know they've been doing this program for over 20 years? It started as a radio show in 1998. We moved to an exclusive podcast in 2016 and have enjoyed talking to all our listeners all over the world. Plus, these guys are best friends and longtime students of the Bible. That's part of why our Christian Questions team of volunteers and listeners feel like it's a big family. Talk to us anytime and hear over a thousand archive programs at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, let's get back at it. What's next, Rick? Okay, let's put this in order. Cowardice is a natural human reaction. We can overcome it by first using the spirit of power, the miraculous infusion of God's influence into our lives. Once we claim that power, we then need to expand its reach and influence by doing what Jesus did. What did he do? He had benevolent love. So there's no accident that says you've got the spirit of fear of cowardice. But instead, we have the spirit of power, this miraculous infusion of God's influence in our, into our lives, and the spirit of love. That comes next. So this spirit of love, what is it? How does it work? Jonathan, there are two primary words for the word for love that's, that's expressed here. What, what do they mean? Well, Rick, it means to love in a social or moral sense and also affection or benevolence. So this it, is really the highest form of love, isn't it, Rick? It's the kind of love and we've talked about this many times before, the kind of love that gives without any thought or need to receive. It gives simply because it wants to, because it, 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 it understands that there, there's, there's, great, there's great blessing in, in being given, and whatever comes of it, it's okay. It just continues to give. That's what Jesus did 
till he died, till he breathed his last breath. He gave and he gave and he gave. And of course, the father, three days later, raised him to a, if you talk about a position of power, you know, that's, that's where Jesus ended up at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was through this benevolent love that he had. True Christian love, these words that you just spoke of, this is a level of selflessness and benevolence that surpasses brotherly love, which is much more common, and there's different aspects of that, as it encompasses a level of giving that has no thought of reciprocation, as we just talked about. It's only concerned with the well-being of those to which it is giving. That's a beautiful, hard thing to accomplish, to really take yourself out we're going to go to a soundbite from uh, The Art of Thinking Clearly from Rolf DeBelli from Zurich Mines. Now, he's got quite an accent, and he's going to be talking about, in this soundbite, what's called the outcome bias. But he's using a, a reference of, of, of an illustration. He says, look, if you took a million monkeys and you asked them to predict the stock market, whether it would go up or down next week, and he goes through the math and he says, okay, half would be wrong, and you take those and you ask them for the next week and half would be wrong, and you take those, and he goes through, he says, eventually you get one that was always right. And he says, and people would study that monkey and say, ooh, what does that monkey eat for breakfast? You know, uh, what, what does that monkey read in his spare time? What is it? You know, and of course, it's kind of silly to think about all of that. And, and so he's saying, you're looking at this outcome. He was right 45 times in a row. There must be something special about that monkey. And that's what the outcome bias is that he is commenting on in this particular soundbite. A fallacy we fall into and that's called the outcome bias. We look at the outcome, but we don't see the process by which this outcome came about. And that's a mistake we often fall into when we look at the world. We now are at a privileged position. We know the story of this monkey. I just told you it's pure randomness, pure chance, a pure statistical coincidence. But when we look at the world, all we see is outcomes, and we generally don't see what's behind this outcome. So what he's saying is instead of making the monkey a celebrity, realize that the process was more important than the outcome. He said the outcome was based on randomness. The process, I mean, the outcome, you know, sounds, sounds so glorious, but it was simply randomness. Let's remember that the outcome doesn't always equal all that went into it. And this is important in our critical thinking, to not get stuck with the outcome bias. So to fully use the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of sound judgment or discipline, we first rely on God's power, like we talked about last segment, to strengthen and enlighten us for action. Next, we have to apply this strength and enlightenment through benevolent love to keep our actions pure just and, and, and Christ-like. So, so Jonathan, it's, it's one thing to have this miraculous infusion of God's influence. It's another thing to use it in the proper way. And that's why love follows being given the spirit of power. The spirit of love follows it. This is the level of love we are commanded to aspire to, and it's shown to us in John 15, 11 through 17. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So there's a very powerful thing here. Jesus, this is the night before his crucifixion, and he says, this is my commandment to you. 
He doesn't say, you know, I've got an idea that you might want to toss around, talk about it between yourselves and see if you like it, see if it sets right inside of you, you know, see if you, you feel like, yeah, I can kind of get a hold of it. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. But he doesn't stop there, does he? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Love He's one saying, another in the same yeah, way that, that I, I love you. Right. And, and that's perfect love. <laughs> and that's sacrificial love. That's this love that he's about to, within 24 hours, show them what it means. And it cost him his life. That's his commandment for us. So when we say we're given the spirit of power and love, that's the love that we're given the spirit of. doesn't mean that we have it perfectly or fully. But that's what ha- should be driving us. Now remember, cowardice lives in all of us. Cowardice and fear have plagued man from the very beginning. Standing firm in benevolent love counters that. So if we got, have God's spirit first, and then it's driven by benevolent love, we can get somewhere fast. We're going to be reading 1 John 3, 11 to 18, and it's interesting, in these verses... The word for love comes up uh, one, two, three, four, five, five or six times. So this is a very, very, very focused set of verses. So let's go uh, verses 11 through 12 to begin with. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and not for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So, you know, you have that Cain and Abel thing and there, there's, there's an evil sense there. There's a jealousy sense there. And, 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 you know, whenever you do something in secret like that, there's always a cowardice that's there as well. Come out in the field. I got something I want to show you. And then he kills him. You know, there's that cowardice because you've got the, all of these other things working. Our command to love one another uh, is based on the purified position given. Not on evil, as with Cain and his brother. It's based on the purified position of being in Christ. You don't get to the spirit of a sound mind. You notice that's the third thing in the order here. You can't get there from here unless you have the spirit of God's power first and the spirit of love driving that power. So, Here's what happens with this. It doesn't go easily. Verse uh, 13 and 14 from 1 John 3. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So that's that's a hard statement. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. You know, and it's again, it's not don't be surprised if the world is just a little bit miffed at, you know, what you might say. If they're, you know, not feeling quite in full agreement with you, he uses a strong word. Hate. Satan is the prince of this world. So the world is his and he hates anything God related, Rick. Yes. Those that are trying to become Christ like they're. Enemy number one in his eyes. Yes, absolutely. And so it says, we know we've passed from death from life because we love the brethren. Who does not love? He who does not love abides in death. That's how important it is. So you can have the spirit of God's power, but without the spirit of love, it's not going to bring you very far. Passage to life is dependent on loving the brotherhood. It will, it will be surrounded by controversy and hate, but that's what we have to rise up to. Verses 15 and 16. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, he brings back that same example that Jesus brought out. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And, and look, Jonathan, that's a hard thing to do, especially when, you know, the, the brother or sister, you know, you may not entirely agree with. or Yeah, or their personality clashes right, with you. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but this is a command, yeah, right? Yes, and that's the point. We have this command and this unmistakable model for this love as well as an unmistakable consequence for not living uh, this love. So again, how do you combat cowardice? You need God's, if you're a Christian, a called out Christian, and have, have been given God's spirit. You've got to have that spirit miraculously dwelling within you because it doesn't come to you naturally. And it's a lot of, a lot of uh, good in you that doesn't come from you, and it needs direction. So that power needs benevolent love as its primary source of instruction, of direction. Go this way. Don't go that way. Go this way. Um, Verses 17 and 18 from 1 John 3. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So benevolent love is not something that you talk about. It's something that you do. Now, it doesn't mean you, you can't talk about it, but it is, it is proven, not in words, but in actions. And God is the judge of those actions. You're not the judge of those actions for me. I'm not the judge of those actions for you. God is our judge, and we are supposed to live in that. And this is the secret as to how to deal with fear, with cowardice. And no wonder the world hates it because it's the opposite of the world. Selfishness versus selfless love towards others. It's so contrary, they, they buck it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, because they don't know what to do with it. And, and, you know, our world is a selfie world. And I have become the God of my world. Selfless love is exactly, precisely the opposite. And we need to dwell in that. If you want to fight the cowardice in your own hearts, grab hold of God's spirit within you. Guide it with this benevolent love. Our love has to be expressed by action. That's what Jesus did. And again, one of the great verses that helps us to understand the, the, the relationship between love and fear is 1 John four eighteen. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. With fear comes cowardice. Fear involves punishment. Yeah. Look, folks, and, and, and I know you've had this experience. There is a time or two or three or four or five or 20 or 30 where you've, you've acted like a coward. I know that ha- that's happened to me. I can, I, can, I can visualize my own mind times when I was cowardly, and it had punishment. It did because I was afraid to speak up, and I got taken advantage of very dramatically because of it. And afterwards, when I looked at myself, it was like, what did I just let happen? And then you know what happened after that, Jonathan? What? 
I let it happen again. We do that. <laughs> and, it's sad, but we do. Yeah, but see, after a while, I finally got the, the courage. And, you know, when it happens, you shake and you quiver from the inside out. Have you ever had that feeling? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just like, but after a while, I was like, okay, enough. There's right and wrong, and this is wrong. And it's grabbing hold of the power of God's influence and saying, let me do the right thing in love. And then after, when those who would take advantage of me try to again, my response to them was, you know, shame on you for doing this. God is watching you. And I said that to them out of love. Now, they would get mad, and sometimes they'd, they'd curse me out and all this. But you know what? They stopped <laughs> because the cowardice was, was contained with godliness. That's how we do this. So in looking at the spirit of love, what, what's our, our learning lesson for this segment? Well, we can only achieve the completeness of love by first acknowledging the power of God's influence. Love gives you a completeness in your life, but it won't happen unless you have the power of God's influence as its foundation. These are two big, big things in combating this cowardice that we're talking about. So there is nothing more brilliant than having love as the driver for the power of God. So now, let's move on to clear thinking. What does it actually mean to have the spirit of a sound mind? Is it just clearly, or is it more? Join our conversation by messaging us through the Christian Questions app. Download it now in your app store. Just search Christian Questions, then give us your thoughts on this and future episodes. Now, let's take a CQ deep dive. For a Christian, the spirit of a sound mind is everything. We are commissioned with walking through our lives and always doing God's will as we follow Jesus. This would literally be an impossible task were it not for the mind of Christ that we are to be listening to. The key, the key, the key is listening to the direction that the mind of Christ gives us. And Jonathan, we now come to this idea of the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we already talked about what that word for sound mind means, but just say it one more time. Yes, Rick, it means discipline that is self-control. Okay, so now, and, and here's the thing. This is not just my personal Rick discipline. This is the discipline that's driven by the Spirit of God that says, Rick is now bound to act in accordance with godly righteousness, to be disciplined according to godly direction, not just what I think I can be disciplined for. Okay? Big difference between the two. The miraculous power of God's influence helps us to stand up to our cowardice. Again, we're going back. See, because if you don't get the equation, you're not going to be able to defeat the cowardice. So the power of God's influence helps to stand up to our cowardice. The spirit of love focuses us on how to approach the use of God's power and influence. The mind of Christ regulates the replacing of our cowardice with wisdom and responsibility. So you see, to me, Jonathan, there's a process Harness God's power within you. He's given it to you. Find it. Grab hold of it. Let love guide it in all ways. And then the spirit of self-control is a godly spirit of self-control that regulates 
how to get the cowardice out of life with wisdom and with responsibility. And, and Rick, that really makes me think of we're called to be stewards yeah. of Christ. Yeah. And we have to represent him. And that, that really fits. So a steward is somebody who takes care of their master's goods, just like they were their own. It's an extraordinary responsibility that requires a lot of discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of self-control and of discipline and of proper judgment is the kind of spirit required of a steward. In those days, the master of a house would find one of his servants that he saw as head and shoulders above the others in terms of the ability. Joseph was a great example. I just thought of that yeah. when you were saying that. Yes. <laughs> you know, somebody you looked at and said, this guy has got it together. He is shown loyalty and wisdom in his judgments. I can trust him or her to be head over my household so that even when I'm away, I have nothing to worry about. You have to have great, great confidence in an individual to give them that kind of power. This is a great responsibility, it you is. know, because, Rick, we're God's property. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. You're right, you're right. See, and, and that's the thing, and that's where the stewardship kind of turns back on us. So we're, we have to be stewards of ourselves because God owns us. And that's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God owns you, but he's given you your life to make decisions with. But you better do them in accordance with God because you belong to him. You don't belong to you. You represent him. So cowardice really has no room to be in that life. It doesn't. The problem is that we're imperfect and it creeps in anyway. <laughs> so we need to find a way to get it out of our lives. And this grabbing hold of God's power and influence, guiding it with benevolent love, and then using the, the uncommon sense of spiritual thinking. I would say common sense, but really it's above that. It's the uncommon sense of spiritual thinking to put things in order once and for all. Let's go back to Rolf DeBelli from Zurich Minds, The Art of Thinking Clearly. You know, he talked about, um, what was the thing he talked about before? It was the, the outcome bias. Now he's going to talk about another principle called the sunk cost fallacy. This is important because we get stuck with this. This, this is an interesting soundbite in terms of our uh, Christian lives. I went with my wife to the movie theater. We had purchased the tickets before. And on the way, it was a beautiful summer night, beautiful lush weather. And I was telling her, do you really want to go to the movies? Why don't we just sit on the lake and watch the sunset? Wouldn't that be nicer than sitting in a room, in a dark room right now? And she said, well, I'd love to do that too. But we purchased those tickets already. They cost $20 and we're going to lose the 20 bucks if we do that. And that is a classic mistake we always fall into, and it's called the sunk cost fallacy. 
the, the 20 bucks have been spent already. They should not have any, any say in what decision we take now. It's non-recoverable expense. So we should just take this moment and say, do I really want to go to the movie right now, or do I want to sit on the lake and watch the sunset? The 20 bucks should not play a role at all. But we see this very often, that non-recoverable expenses, stuff we have already invested, somehow creep up to us. This, this is a great, great example. And Jonathan, I want to I mirror this, with the, and I'm going to be careful to keep this anonymous, but a, a listener just wrote in within the last couple of weeks, and uh, she went over an experience uh, of, of some hardships in life and uh, essentially got, got into a, a relationship scenario that really wasn't going to be good for her. And, but, you know, you invested time and effort into that. You've, you've invested the, the cost. You've paid the price, essentially. And she got to a point of realizing this is not going anywhere, and she was able to walk away from it. And, you know, I, I wrote her back because I was just like, you know, you've got some courage there, sister, you know, to be able to do that because most people wouldn't. And as followers of Christ, we have to be careful that when we do things on an earthly level that may not be the best, that there could be better options, that we don't say to ourselves, well, I've already started, so I might as well finish. I've already invested this much time. But if there's something better, something higher, something more spiritual, it's a sunk cost. It's already paid out. Don't worry. Honor God. That's a, that, that's a principle of a spirit of a sound mind. To say, whatever I've done on an earthly level, okay, maybe okay. But if something arises, an opportunity that's bigger and, and more godly, then yes, I really have to you know, look toward that. Now, obviously, you have to fulfill responsibilities. So we're not talking about responsibilities, but we're talking about choices, making choices that are higher. So that's a great principle to gauge that spirit of a sound mind, that spirit of discipline from a godly perspective. But Jonathan, it doesn't always go easily, does it? No, it doesn't, Rick. It doesn't. We all want to be perceived well in our lives. Yes, we do. And so there are going to be, there are three opposites of responsibility and discipline, and these follow the pattern of our theme text. So to be perceived well in our lives, one of the opposites of this spirit of a sound mind and spirit of discipline is uh, making excuses. <laughs> what about them? Excuse away our failure to make spiritual progress. If things go poorly, it is always something else where we live or the circumstances weren't right or we just can't catch a break. Okay. <laughs> you know, and excuses are... Uh, you know, just the sun was in my eyes, man. I mean, what am I supposed to do? The sun was in my eyes. And we can, we can explain away not following through with that spirit of a sound mind. The parable of the pounds, we're just not going to get into the whole parable, but one couple, couple of lines on it, really displays the end result of excuses spiritually. Because God, because we are stewards, and you said, you know, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. No, we don't. So we're we, God's property. We have to manage God's property with the greatest diligence that we can afford. Luke nineteen twenty to twenty one in this parable. Remember the one who was given that everybody was given a pound, and one of the servants that was given the pound uh, didn't do anything with it. You kept it safe and then gave it back to the master. Like I didn't want to mess it up, so here it's exactly the way you gave it to me. What's the master? Well, let, let's go through that in verses twenty and twenty one. Another came saying, "Master, here is your mina." which I kept and put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. 
You take up what you do not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So he's saying, I'm just giving it back to you because you're, you're tough. You're tough to please. So I didn't want to mess anything up. Of course, the master is not happy with him. You should have done something. You should have acted somehow. And all you did was take the cowardly road. See, excuses are dwelling in fear and cowardice and are not allowing God's power to address our circumstances. That's what excuses are. And look, don't make an excuse for making excuses, okay? Because you're just going further into the rabbit hole and it's not a good place. What's the next point? Well, Rick, it's blaming others. Yeah, it is your fault, you know. <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay, Ask well, my wife. No, <laughs> no, she would say the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> All right, so what, what about blaming others? Well, we blame when we feel inferior, inadequate, fearful, jealous, doubtful, and guilty. We blame our church, our elders, our family, our boss, or even the Lord. You know, it's really easy to blame others for our lack of responsibility. The spirit of a sound mind is, is the spirit of spiritual discipline in our lives, which means accepting responsibility when things are not right. First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty to 21, a great scripture, Old Testament scripture about King Saul and his classic blaming everybody and their brother except for himself. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the Lord of the, the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agai, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. I did everything God told me to, but it was the people. It was the people that did it, Samuel, not me. Uh, okay, quick question. Who's the king? <laughs> he is Samuel. Who has who, who has final word? Saul. I'm does. sorry, Saul. Saul does. Uh, yeah, Saul. So placing blame shows a desire for good appearance and is in opposition to the spirit of love. See, you know, excuses. What what excuses do? The first thing is they is they they circumvent the power of God. Placing blame on others is in opposition to the spirit of love because love wouldn't do that. It's directly opposed to what's supposed to be driving the power of God that's in us. Um, you know, spirit of love would never deceive or mislead anyone. No. You know, and, and Jonathan, in, in business, you know, I, I have I deal with lots of different people, and you know, I have several clients on you know with, with different things, and sometimes things don't go perfectly, and or sometimes I'll make a mistake, and I have found that the very best way to handle it is as soon as you realize it, a you look for a solution. Okay, and we're going to get to that next. But B, you, you confront the individual. And, you know, when I make a mistake and I call and say, hey, listen, such and such happened, it was my fault. This is what I did. I truly apologize. Here's what I'm doing to fix it. The response is always gracious because you've told them right up front, this, this went wrong. I did it. And here's what I'm trying to do to undo what I did. And there's a, it's, a, it's a very, very wonderful thing to have the, you know, it's embarrassing, but to, to just say, look, own it. Don't go blaming others. Don't say, well, you know, when they process the paperwork, here's what happened. If they would have paid attention to that note, and even if it was one of those sort of things, I still take the blame for it. 
because you know what? I'm ultimately responsible. So it's just a good lesson that, that I've learned in, in, in the world of business. So we've got excuses that circumvent the spirit of power. We've got blaming others that circumvents the spirit of love. And what's the third issue, the third opposite of responsibility? Well, Rick, it's focusing on the problem rather than the solution. All right. Do we talk about and dwell on the problem or are we busy solving it? And that's a huge thing. Again, the spirit of a sound mind, the spirit of godly thinking in your life doesn't look at the flat tire and say, wow, that tire is really flat. Wow, look, if I go over on this side, it looks flat too. Let me go around the other side of the car. Wow, that's a flat tire, all right. Man, it's This flat. gets you nowhere, Rick. <laughs> yeah, but Jonathan, the tire's flat. You understand? <laughs> First Kings 18.21 is, 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 is not exactly on this point, but very, very close to it. First Kings 18.21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah has got this audience. Now, granted, it's him against 450 prophets of Baal. So the people look at one versus 450, and maybe they're a little scared. Okay? You know, and they had, those prophets of Baal had 300 servants behind them. So That's right. Yeah, okay? <laughs> but, but, but Elijah brings it to the core point. If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make a choice. And the people were scared. They were cowardly, and nobody said a word. So Elijah did what God would have him to do and destroyed all of the evil that was before them in spite of their inability. But they were focusing on the problem. It's 750 to 1. Elijah, don't you understand? We can't say anything because then it'll be 750 to 2, and I'm going to die with you. Why would I want to die with you? I got to live. I got I to be quiet. I'll, I'll live quietly, and maybe nobody will notice. You know, I mean, they're going through all this rationalization. They're not solving the problem. For us, the spirit of a, of a spiritually sound, clear thinking, disciplined mind says, get about solving it. There's no soundness, discipline, or success in going round and round on the issue. What's the solution? Rick, it's embrace the mind of Christ as you as your primary guide. To follow it is to walk the path of the faithful. Embrace the mind of Christ. That is your guide. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. That's it. You get there by embracing the spirit of power, driving it with the spirit of love, and now you've got the spirit of a sound mind. That's how we get to where we need to go. It takes a lot to get to the point of having a sound Christian mind. I am so glad that we have the instructions. God's power, benevolent love, and Christ-like discipline defined a sound Christian mind. What else is left? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. You know, the only thing left is to finish the story that we started with. We cannot simply leave the Apostle Peter out there as an example of cowardice. Jesus had many other plans for him, and Peter rose to the occasion and lived his life as an exemplary model of one who had a sound Christian mind. Now, it doesn't mean that Peter never made mistakes. 
What it does mean is he was faithful even unto death. It means that he led and others followed because he was sound in his spiritual thinking. He embraced the power of God within him. He lived his life in absolute love for others, and then he had the ability to rise to the point of being very, very wise spiritually. And the spirit of a sound mind, Rick, you learn from your mistakes. Yes. Yeah. He learned. Yeah. So, so it's not about not making mistakes. No. It's about what you do after you make the mistake. Yes. That's what it comes down to. And the spirit of a sound mind helps us to cope with that, the embarrassment, the humiliation, and all of those things, and to rise up and get going again. So one last soundbite from uh, Rolf uh, Dobelli, Zurich Minds, The Art of Thinking Clearly. And again, this is important, uh, just like the last one. Uh, this is called motivation crowding. And th- th- there's something really special about this. Listen, listen carefully. A friend of mine moved from Frankfurt to Zurich. And he knows that I'm in Frankfurt a lot by car. So he called me up and said, would you mind dropping by my mother and taking this vase, it's a beautiful Murano hand-blown vase, and bring it to Zurich since you're driving this way anyway. I said, sure, no problem. So I went there. I picked up the vase at his mother's place in Frankfurt, drove it to Zurich, gave it to him. It didn't break. Gave it to him, and he said, thank you so much. He pulled out the wallet and gave me 100 euros and said, thank you. I'm like, 100 euros? For what? He said, well, that's for the delivery. And a woman probably would not have done this. And that's called motivation crowding. If you bring in monetary incentives into a system that is driven by internal motivation or social motivation, it changes the whole game. It actually devalued our friendship, and it took quite a lot of weeks to get it back onto the same level it was before. So really what he's saying is he offered me this money. I took the money, and I really shouldn't have because I was making the trip anyway. He's my friend. What else would I do? This is not about being paid. This is about my friend needing something and me having this incredible opportunity to say, sure, I'll do that for you. But he didn't do that. He crowded the motivation with something else. And Jonathan, before we get to back to the Apostle Peter, just want to make a side comment that oftentimes in many ministries, There's a motivation crowding that goes on because the ministers get paid really well for what they do. Is the ministry about the dollars and cents or is it about giving spirituality to others? That's motivation crowding and you can see how things can get get confused when you throw in those other kinds of motivations. The gospel is not meant as a pay-for-service kind of thing. It's meant to be freely given. Let's think about that using the spirit of a Christian sound mind. So let's get to the Apostle Peter, okay? Let's put Peter back where he belongs, all right? Jesus appears after his resurrection. They all come to the shore, and they gather around him, and this is where Jesus essentially is forgiving Peter, not just forgiving him, but giving him great responsibility. Uh, And again, this is still before Pentecost, so Peter does not have the spirit yet. Okay, but Jesus is showing Peter his incredible confidence in him. John 21, uh, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. So the question, do you love me? Do you agape, that, that benevolent, do you love me? And the answer is, yeah, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter didn't answer exactly the same, did he? No, he didn't, Rick. He said, I brotherly love you. Philadelphia love you. And that is much more of a give and take kind of a thing versus just benevolent. So, so Jesus hears his answer, and he's not phased by that. And he says, I'm giving you a mission. And it's feed my lambs. Now, when he says feed my lambs, Jonathan, what do we think that that symbolized specifically? Well, I love this, Rick. It's the young, the beginners, the lambs who need the milk of the word. It's those new, new little excited Christians that have just received the good news and want to be a part of it. But they are not yet mature. No, they need special attention. Right. And so there is this. So, so this is a mission because he's giving it to Peter. Now, the other apostles are right there, but he's giving it to Peter to be the example. So this is a mission only to be given to one who's really, really trusted, one who's been given a new name. Remember, it used to be Simon. He was called Peter now. One who would rely on the miraculous power of God's influence. See, Jesus says, feed the babies who are following me, figurative babies in Christ that are following me. Peter learned to funnel the power of God through Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to manage that because it was such a big responsibility. And, and while we're talking about this, do you agree that when he's saying, do you love me more than these? You know, they're on the shore. They brought fish in. That was his business. His focus of life before he met Jesus. Was that what he was saying, do you love me more than that past life and in, in your, your work? Right. I Absolutely, because he's saying, are you willing to walk away from all and do what I am about to give you to do? And now here's your mission. Right, right. And the mission, now it started out with feeding the babies, which took great harnessing of the power that would be given at Pentecost. And, 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 and we see Peter throughout his, his spiritual life did a remarkable job of that, harnessing of that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's just the first piece of his mission. John 21, the next verse, verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Okay, so the question again, do you love me? Benevolent love, agape, love me. And the answer, you know that I brotherly love you. Yes, again, same thing. But now the mission is a little bit different. He says, tend or shepherd my sheep. What, what, what's he focusing on here? Well, Rick, we think the more mature sheep who need guidance and direction in a different way that the lambs did, he has to be a leader of all different types of, of Christians and fulfill their different needs. So when you're taking care of babies, you're not leading by example. You're, you're nurturing to raise them up. Yes. When you're taking care of adults, now you're leading by example. And, and they're ready for the meat yes. of the word. They're ready for something to really dig into at that stage. So this is an entirely different responsibility, an entirely different level of difficulty as well. So this is a mission because he's, he's setting up all of Christianity, using the Apostle Peter as the beginning point. So this is a mission you only give to the one who you trust, one who's learned through experience and failure to love in the highest way. And Peter learned 
from his first segment of, of our podcast today. He learned by that horrible, horrible, horrible pressure that he succumbed to. He learned from it. And that failure was a necessary ingredient to tenderly care for Jesus' own flock because he would be caring for those who would fall like that. That is such a beautiful thing. And What he, an experience so that he could have that tender care for right. others. He would be the perfect example to take them by the hand and say, I know, I know, but let's go forward. Let's move up. Let's, let's, let's leave that behind. So Jesus gives him the second level, but that's not all. John chapter 21, verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So now Jesus asks him, do you love me? But Jonathan, the question's different this time. That's right. It, it is that filio, Philadelphia love that he is asking him in this example. So, you know, that's interesting. He says, do you benevolently love me? Do you benevolently love me? Now, this third time is, do you Philadelphia brotherly love me? Now, Peter twice has already told him I do. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is asking him again. And you think, you know, Peter's a little frustrated here. He says, Lord, you know everything. And by the way, you know, I, I already told you twice. <laughs> you know, you know that I love you. You do. You know that. You know that. You know that. And I think Jesus did that because he's telling, telling Peter, I'm going to require a lot of you. And I know that it's what you said, but I need it to be what you do. And that's why I am harping on these things, because it needs to be the way you live. Again, the spirit of a sound mind in Christ. That's what it boils down to. So the mission now is to feed my sheep. And how is this different than the previous two pieces? You're right, Rick. This one's tend my sheep. The last one was shepherd my right. sheep. This one, we believe, are the weak sheep, the weak in the faith who need to be fed and cared for specially. And, and Rick, that makes me think, you know, there are mentally or emotionally or physically um, brethren that that have certain needs and you have to understand where they are so that you can really lift them higher spiritually. So you have these three aspects. Well, first of all, this is a mission only to be given one you trust, to be given to one who can understand weakness. Who better to understand weakness than the Apostle Peter? Perfect. To, to understand that weakness with wisdom and with godliness and to be able to give what's necessary to overcome it. Peter learned through his experience. So Jesus was telling him, Feed the babies who are following me that, that are not yet mature. You need to have the power of God working in you to feed them. Feed the adults. You need to love them because they're more on your level. They're more your peers, and you need to lead them by example. You need to love them deeply. And then you need to have the great wisdom of the spirit of a sound mind to be able to manage those who are sickly and afflicted in all kinds of different ways. So, I, I love it, Rick. Love me on every level. Yes, and, the and, family of God. And again, the way to fight cowardice is by the spirit of power, God's power in our lives, the spirit of love, guiding that power benevolently and using sound spiritual discipline and reason and scriptures to help others and lift them out of all kinds of difficulties. This is 
how Jesus responded to those difficulties that Peter had expressed to him previously. So Jonathan, as we wrap this up, use your godly mind and do the work set before you. Engage God's power to focus and direct, direct your energy. Do all with selfless love as your core motivation and live in the discipline and the soundness of your spiritual mind. Three aspects to the same thing. How do you be cowardice in your life? You apply these things, these three things. But it all starts with the Spirit of God. Okay? So just three quick scriptures as we wrap this up. First is Ecclesiastes uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians nine, verse ten. Ecclesiastes nine ten. That's what I said. Not really, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever your hand finds to do. Do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave or sheol where you are going. So spiritually, whatever God gives you to do, don't just play games with it. Do it with your might. Get after it, because that's what the spirit of a sound mind brings us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is interesting, because the Apostle Paul, you know, is saying, um, you know, yeah, I preach the gospel, but I can't tell you, I can't, you know, boast to you that, uh, you know, wow, look at me, I'm preaching the gospel. His, his whole attitude of his life was, I have to preach the gospel. I cannot not preach the gospel because that is the driving force in my entire life. There's, I have no choice. So don't come to me and look to, and say, wow, look at him preach the gospel. No, no, no. I have to. That's the spirit of a sound mind, Jonathan, that's thoroughly engaged. It has taken the spirit of power, taken the, the power of God's spirit in our lives. It is, it is driven by love. And it is using sound, clear spiritual judgment and, and guidance and discipline to just get the job done. And then, you know, for all of us, this is a long road. And this last scripture is a great scripture to wrap up on. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What God starts, he will finish. Unless... We stand in his way. That's really the bottom line here. So, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, we have a final, a final usually you end up with a final statement. But today we're going to end up with a final question. And this question is going to be your homework. Yes. For the Ooh, first that time. word. Homework. <laughs> for the first time in over 20 years, we are giving you homework. So, Jonathan, what is the homework? If I have been given the spirit of power, love, and discipline in Christ, who around me can observe it at work? Can people see that you have been given the spirit of power, love, and discipline in Christ? Can they observe there's something different in your life? Do I have a sound Christian mind? What's the answer to that question? Are we living our lives with still a little bit of cowardice? Or are we dwelling in the spirit of Christ with that power and love and sound mind? Folks, what a great opportunity we have. Let's not stand back. Let's take steps forward 
in Christ. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today, talking about something really important, the soundness of your mind in Christ. Think about it. Listen, folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us. We'd really, really greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, what happened at the Last Supper? What really happened there? Talk to you next week. Thank you.